Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to let go of our subject-object dualities and celebrate our collective passion for the weird, interstitial fibers and mediums of interconnection. Mm, We are swimming in this stuff together. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, working at the intersection of technology, science, and culture, my friend, colleague, and now office mate, Kevin Slavin. Maybe actually there is no individual, right? Because if the individual is actually totally made up of 10,000 or 100,000 distinct microbes, you know, that, that number in the, in the millions or, or billions or trillions, and if you were to remove that microbe, the human is nothing. Kevin is going to introduce us to the weird and wonderful world of microbial sensing and what pandemics can teach us about the game of life. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I was at a conference the other day, and I saw one of those trade booths from a company that conducts focus groups on behalf of a retail goods Uh, firms. And their pitch was that they will find the consumers who know the most about your product and who love your product the most so that you can learn about how your product works. (laughs) So it just struck me as odd. It, It stuck with me, the idea that the people who should know the most about a product are consumers and not the people in the company itself. I mean, I find it odd to think I might be using a phone or a microphone or a cereal or uh, uh, anything, a pen, where I know more about how this pen opens and closes and whether it works or not on paper and how it feels than the people in the place. I like to imagine that the people in the pen company, they're the aficionados. They're the experts. Imagine you're you're drinking wine and you know more about wine than the vintner or drinking scotch and you know more than the distiller. That's, That's quite ass backwards. But it does reflect the generic kind of utility values that we apply to so much of what we're doing today. I mean, there's nothing wrong with with the utility player in a baseball game. I'm glad for someone who can do both second base and shortstop. But even the utility player usually has some other special expertise, some specialty. Yes, they can go from here to there because they have such good game sense. They're such good improvisers. They understand the mechanics of 
the game so well that they're also an expert or a team captain or something something special. This idea of 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 almost generic companies depending on consumers and consumer research and questionnaires and those emails that they send out, it's as if nobody's home. And to some extent, Nobody is home. And look at the CEOs. There's a guy who be he'll be, you know, CEO of a of a smartphone company one day, a map company the next day, a, a an electronics company the next day, and a, a big agri company the next day. And all right, if they're CEO-ish and they're really good business people and they understand something particular, like shareholders or mergers or acquisitions or whatever, but you would kind of want a CEO of a true passionate company to be the leader of the culture of that thing. The CEO of the bike gear company should be someone who loves bicycle gears. The CEO of the tomato sauce company should know and love tomato sauce because they are leading tomato sauce culture. I mean, I may sound a little crazy here. I understand, but I'm concerned that we are moving away from culture and towards a very generic utilitarian understanding of ourselves as human beings. And that is reflected in the way that we do business with each other. Business is not an evil thing in itself. I know we're like supposed to be good leftists. No, business, commerce is fine. You make something you want to be paid for, you get a profit, and you use that to buy stuff that you need. That's all good. I'm not talking about financialization or capitalism or extraction or enslavement. It's just basic commerce is, is fine. But the idea is that the people that you're buying from, they know about the thing more than you do. You could be a lover of the thing, but you want the people in the company to be lovers of the thing too. And you could think of some companies that are like that, maybe, you know, Birkenstocks. I imagine the people there really understand leather. They're over in Germany. They understand how the footworks or something. I, I hope that they understand more about it than I do as a consumer. But when they turn to us to understand the, the nooks and crannies of the, the product's experience better than them, that speaks to more than just a lack of expertise. It speaks to a lack of passion. And if you don't have passion for the thing, then really, hate to tell you, then you really are ripe to be replaced by an AI. You know, AIs will always have more utility value than us people. That's what they are, is pure utility value. And if you want utility value, then yeah, someday robot, AI, whatever it is. But what AIs don't have and they'll never have is passion for the thing. They don't have a personal stake in how it's done. They don't have an opinion. They don't have a culture. The best thing that a business can do for us is is uh, fund the culture around something we care about. They fund the culture around that product, around that nerd dumb, around the the geeks who really care, the most passionate ones. And the further in you are, in theory, the the closer you are to the production of that thing is your true expertise. It's that. It's that passion. It's that culture. I mean, technology is 
best informed by a culture that has needs and values, uh, finance even, anything that was cereal or wheat or glass or cement. I once went, I actually gave a talk for a cement company and I experienced cement culture, concrete culture, people who care about it and how it's made and making it more environmentally and, and the whole nine yards. It's, it's amazing. But we dispense with that with that passion, with that sense of personal passion for what we do, really, we dispense with that um, at great risk, uh, at great risk to ourselves. It's the culture that holds us together. It's the culture that informs us. It's the culture that we become passionate about. I mean, that's really what what uh, today's guest is all about. He is a person who has followed his passion, and it's worked again and again and again and again. So. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with with my friend Kevin Slavin that'll be right after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Kevin Slavin has been playing at the intersection of technology, culture, science, cities, and games since I met him in the late 90s, I guess. He's taught at MIT. He ran a computer game company called Area Code and got kind of famous for a TED Talk about the way the needs of the ultra-fast stock market algorithms change the value of real estate in New York. He's also one of the people who realized that looking at wastewater is a great way to see what the heck is going on above ground, including COVID spikes and mutations. I ran into him just as he was looking for a place to work, and I was looking for a way to subsidize my office rent, so voila, he's now my office mate. We kept having super rich conversations since he got here, so I figured we would have one of them for Team Human. So here you go, a man who really just gets interested in something and then goes and pursues it. Nice work if you can get it. Maybe we can model something here. My friend, Kevin Slavin. So Kevin, I, we've never actually done anything quite like this, although no. we've spoken a lot. We have spoken uh, a lot. Or I think I met you at ITP. Were we both there? Interactive Telecommunications Program at, at NYU. Yeah, yeah, NYU. yeah. I was teaching there in the mid aughts, like two thousand five through two thousand eight. Yeah, maybe, that was my like last that. period there. Yeah. I was yeah. at late nineties yeah. originally, then went yeah. back to do my economic stuff. And you were there doing game stuff. Game stuff. Although at the t- what I was teaching originally at ITP was coursework with Adam Greenfield called Urban Computing, and we were we that was like and because it was early and we were like, well, it seems like once we all have these phones that weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are now, and once they know more and more about everything around us, that ambient informatics would transform our experience of the city. 
And so wow. we ran that class for a couple of years, which was And what was that? Was that where fun. things like, like Foursquare came out of? Dennis Crowley was just before we started teaching there. So, but it was like of that moment and that milieu. Right. Yeah, totally of that milieu. So, yeah, and before Foursquare, I remember there was Dodgeball, which was just on, it was text messages on phones. And there was no, the only location fixing was somebody saying, I am here. Right. right. Yeah. There was no yeah. GPS. Right. No, there was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and that's what that's what we were really interested in is how how technologies would change what it meant to live in a city. And it was and it was a wild time. It was really it was it was beautiful because it was it was also at that time. It was also very difficult to figure all that out. Like it wasn't like there was like a GPS chip in your phone and you could just look up where you were and it was hard. Well, if you wanted to make things that knew where people were, you had to have people check in. You had to have people check in. <laughs> or there was like there were like complicated things that we were doing. Like you could find out where somebody is by getting what's called cell site sector data off of the towers where the phones are, and you could you could license that data at the time from like Singular or T Mobile or whoever the Whoever well, there were was, shows right? like 24 where like Kiefer Sutherland would like call Mission Control, whatever, yeah. the CIA, wherever yeah. he worked for. And they would like, go, oh, we're triangulating them with the cell yeah. towers. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, 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 yeah, we did that. Right. And you can do that. Yeah. It's just it's just a lot easier now because you don't have to. Right. Like, right. Yeah, Where yeah, is he? There. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Find my He's phone. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so. that's not talking to the cell. That's talking to some satellite. It's complicated. It's this. It's the cell phone is reading signals off of a satellite and then sending that back to a server. So, oh, okay. Yeah, but so, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But it needs satellites a, to do it. It does or, need satellites to do it. Yeah, yeah. Which yep. is kind of cool. It is kind of cool. They're yeah. up there, so yeah. like a lot of things talking to each other yeah. to make this stuff. So you were not originally. What was what was like your original expertise? I never knew that. I, st I studied sculpture. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I, that's the only thing I ever physical sculpture, like making stuff out of clay. Well, yeah. I mean, so I studied sculpture at Cooper Union and, and studying sculpture at Cooper Union in the period that I did it in just meant that you weren't painting or taking photographs or what are the other options? Drawing, making collages. Right. You were doing something else. It was kind of like the white space of art right. practice. And so that's what I studied. And, uh, and I had an amazing mentor, an artist named Hans Hacke, who's not super, super well known in the United States, but really, really important artist who was sort of one of the original artists who was working first with sort of natural materials and systems. He was famous for doing a cube that was hermetically sealed, but had a little bit of moisture in it. So the, the condition of the water in it was affected by the presence or absence of people in the gallery. And he was really interested in these natural uh -huh. systems. And, and he was sort of one of the artists of that period to really say like these natural systems are what artists should work with. And then he then turned his work towards social and political systems and then started working on all that. And, and he was kind of my mentor. And so, and he worked with like bell labs back in the day when artists did that. Right. right. And that's kind of how I was raised was to think about systems as the subject of the work. And so, so yeah, so I studied sculpture, but not like, you know, clay on a wheel. Right. right? Yeah. Not yeah. making a yeah. Michelangelo bust or something. No, I feel, I feel right. like that's, that groove is well worn. 
right? It doesn't, I didn't, didn't need me to add anything to right. it, right? Yeah, yeah. Not, well, that, you not, had, not that no one should do it, but I'm just someone saying. Someone else is I, adding I, something to yes, it, they but can, you're not. They should, that's not what, <laughs> did, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I had anything to contribute there. Right, yeah. yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, so I get it. And then you got, you started a game company with, with was that with Frank Lance? I did, I started that with Frank Lance, yep, yep, yeah. So we started that in 2004, let's say, maybe. And these were yeah. games people play, or like these, these were, were like city games? These were, these were the very first city games or not the very very first there were like a few things that happened before us there was like well, they had games in ancient rome they they <laughs> did i i did although yeah yeah hopscotch you know the history of hopscotch no it was to train roman soldiers it was basically physical exercise they would do hopscotch but with their full pack on um so yeah like most most games from ancient rome were basically just preparing <laughs> right. you to go kill people but still they had them and and actually that's not really true they had plenty of games that were not for killing people but yeah so i started a company with frank in 2004 i think it was 2004 it might have been 2003 and let's see some of the sort of predecessors were that frank had just done something in minneapolis with katie salen and uh eric zimmerman uh, no, no it wasn't eric it was uh, nick fortuna uh-huh. and so so katie and nick and frank had done in 2003 they'd done something in minneapolis called the big urban game and i remember seeing that and being like, this is by far the most interesting future that I can imagine. And, and what and, was and that? Like the they, giant Pac-Man people running around? It was grabbing before each that. Other? It was uh-huh. so so it's what led to that. So so Frank and Katie and Nick did a game that used the city of Minneapolis as the game board. And they had these huge inflatable playing pieces and and huge dice. And people were like rolling these dice and like moving around these huge pieces through the city. It was it was spectacular, uh, right? Like, in, yeah. you know, it's it truly spectacular. And actually, there's a whole weird kind of like, like this is all somehow laminated with Clay Shirky, who also became aware of that and thought this was the most interesting future. And, and in a way worked with Frank to say like, now you should turn that into something here at NYU. And that's what led to the first class around big games, big games right? Big yeah. And then the first thing that really came out of that that was famous was called Pac Manhattan, which was kind of the same idea as the big urban game. So that's Dennis Crowley, right, who goes on to do Dodgeball and Foursquare, right? So these are are all the roots of these things that we totally take for granted now. They really, like, they didn't start in Silicon Valley. They didn't start, you know, in Cambridge. Like, they started in New York City. And it makes sense because it's a fucking city, right? Right. You know, and that's like, that's where people are going to think about these things. But it is. And even though it's not, you know, mean streets, it does feel like the sort of the original New York, remember the New York independent film movement Mm -hmm. of Scorsese and those guys. Guys, as a counterpoint to what was going on in Hollywood, like exactly. Sound of Music and, and exactly, exactly, <laughs> and these giant, you know, exactly. cinemascope things. Yep. Let's just make, yep. you know, I think, I mean, taking I, yeah. a Pelham one, two, three. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to some degree, like even the game design program at NYU that that runs now, that Frank Lance really started and yeah. ran for many years, it was really conceived in the same idea, right? That there's like you can go out to LA or San Francisco and learn how they make games, or you could do it like we fucking do it in New York, yeah. right? Which has nothing to do with that in a way, right? Like all respect, you know, it's right. cool. It's good. 
But there's another way to see gig it. Is and, it. Yeah, yeah, gig yeah. is in go in good health, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. if you're yeah. part of a city that understands itself as a city rather exactly. than some sort of exactly. giant Yonkers sprawl exactly. of LA, <laughs> exactly. right, yeah. That, yeah. then it's like, yeah. oh, what is our organismic connection to one another? That's right. That's right. And then what are, how do we as individuals get to experience some of the second order systemic reality exactly. Exactly. of the city? Exactly. And that was that's what Frank and I were obsessed with, right? And that's what right. led us to start this company, Area Code. And we were like, I don't know how, but we'll just we'll, we'll figure out how to get people to pay for this somehow. Right. And we kind of pieced it together, and then it kind of grew and grew and grew. We were coming at it like I had a sculpture background. Frank had a painting background, you know, right? Like we, we you know, like there were no two people less less destined you know, to start right. to start to start a reasonably successful company together but we did and both of us really came to it in part like in part kind of directly from like situationist ideas right. and, and and psychogeography and the notions that that there are all these layers to the city you know that are invisible and and you know for us we used to talk about this all the time it's just like like the thing that the situationist lacked was software right <laughs> like like they like they had to they had to like physically intervene you know, into things, right? right? And we're like, well, we we can make other forms of interventions that change consciousness by using software and by using right. these little computers that we're well, carrying around. The situations did have art and language. I mean, so they could take like some giant long-term corporate communication strategy and kind of ad busters flip it. Yeah. You know, the situationists yeah, yeah. are yep. into that, what they call detournement, yeah, yeah, right? Where they, yeah, you put yeah. one word on Marlboro yeah. country, you put a tombstone on Marlboro yeah. country and it's, yeah. you flipped it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that, you know, and those kinds of flips were what we were interested in. And, and the thing is, is that in a way that's what all games do, right? They, they place you within this bounded space. That's an alternative to whatever you're in. But the idea that that bounded space could also be the, you know, like the place that you're in was just right. like this wild idea. It's still a wild idea, it right? Is, it remains a wild idea. Right. right. But that's what, what interests me from the, the team human perspective in all what you're talking about. So I've always, as a team humanite, I've loved the city and kind of disliked the nation state because uh -huh. the city is this most natural uh, amalgamation of people, yeah. right? Which yeah. is why it's so, for, for an artist like you, who's someone who's thinking about relationships between people, it's like the city is the easiest model. It's the easiest way for people to understand, oh, wait a minute, I'm part of an organism. Yeah, exactly. It exactly. has a circulatory exactly. system exactly. and a subway exactly. and motion and exactly. money. Exactly. You know, so the exactly. city is, yeah. is the team human thing, whereas the nation state is just an abstraction right. by politicians That's to right. make you loyal to their army or That's whatever. Right. Also, I mean, I think I think New York is is special for a million reasons, but one of the one of the most important, and I mean, you know, and I, I grew up in New York City, right? Like I, I think one of the most important ways that it differs from most other American cities is the subway. Right. You know, and that it's like it's it's 24 hours and it can take you just about anywhere in the city. And when you're on it, you're on it with almost anyone could be on the subway with you. Right. right? You know, and and there's no way to ride the subway and not be aware that you are part of this grand experiment of like all these different people who are all thinking these different things. Like there's no way that there's types of software that's only going to get built by people who ride the subway every day as opposed to people who like drive an hour to you know corporate complex every day right because you know in their little bubble right, right? like it's just it, you're just going to be different you're just going to be a different person and you're going to understand the ways that people connect very differently because you are actually surrounded by people 
you know, and that's a surrounded by strangers in particular. I think that, right, yeah. and then the the way you look at. I hate to even call them kind of problems and solutions. I'm mm. reading a lot of uh, uh, Nora Bateson lately, and I'm trying not to think of things as problems to be solved, yeah, but yeah. more as, you know, systems that are moving in different yeah. ways. How, yeah. how do you accommodate things yeah. rather than yeah. cure them? Yeah. You know, which is very urban too, in a certain way. It's like, you got to get along. What do yeah. we do with those guys? That's the a drum circle when we're right. trying to have our meeting. Right, right. You have to, you, you, you fucking have to figure it out. And, P, and, and in general, New York City figures it out like you right, know, like it's, a, it's like rude. yeah fuck you is know, not a rude thing to say <laughs> right, it just means fuck right, you right. no <laughs> it's like it's a it's a miracle that it's like somewhere in between eight and nine million people who every day mostly get along right like it's a miracle right i don't think you're island. any more yeah. likely to be shot no you know, no no, in no, no New York you're far, you you're far, are, you're far you know, less likely to get shot in, in new york than almost anywhere yeah 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 at least yeah. by uh, by you know the percentage population for yeah. sure yes, yeah, for sure <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's a it's a luxury. Yeah. So anyway, so I get how you were, were thinking, and then you did the gamey stuff, and so, then yeah. you yeah. got kind of famous shortly after that. Yeah. By you, you did a talk where you showed how that the algorithms that ultra fast trading people yeah. were using on Wall Street were kind of the same ones that we saw in those first MIT yeah. games of uh, where where games were kind of fighting each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there was there was a TED talk which I guess was 2011 and maybe it's 2012 and it was like an early set of ideas about how algorithms shape culture and and I think they're things that are pretty if they're not banal by now they're at least they're at least well, they're well known, right? Yeah. You know, like, like there's no there's no, it's not exactly a revelation However, what I was most interested in at the time and kind of like my entry into it at the time was that because algorithms were what Wall Street was using and because the speed of the execution against them became the, the number one priority, it meant that being closer to the head of the pipe gave you a, a substantive advantage in your trading. So right? in and this so, digital world of ultra-fast trading, yeah. the closer you're physically located to the trunk of the thing at Wall Street or yep, whatever, exactly. the trading desk, matters. So it, all of a sudden... It, yeah, it matters like in a billions of dollars way. Yeah, yeah. Right. So and the so, physical world mattered again. It, exactly. And so and so what I realized was it was it was the same thing that was fascinating to me about the games that we were doing, which is like, okay, so the city is actually being shaped by a whole bunch of code. It's like, I don't, I don't know what the code is. You know, I can't have a relationship, but it's like, I can begin to understand what it is. And it's like, and then you can look at certain buildings and you're like, like this building, there's no lights on because it's only servers in there now, right? Because it was more valuable as a server farm than it was as residential real estate. And, and it's like, oh, I see like software is actually physically altering the city that I'm living. In. That was for me. Wow. Like that, software yeah. is then is like a fungal organism thing that the yeah. software needs I need to be close to this building. You people who live here, you must go. It's like, how are you going to kick him out? We're going to raise the price of your rent to the point where you can't afford to live. Only the algorithm can afford to live in this building. Now. I knew, I knew an architect who specialized in in retrofitting for servers, right? Because, <laughs> because, because one of the things is is that servers have different. Um, the, like the way a server looks at space is really different well, it than, need a than humans, right? It, right. Does, it doesn't need a bathroom, but it needs to be much cooler, 
right than right. than humans do and they're much heavier than humans so they were like they were like uh. steel reinforcing floors and like bringing in new hvac systems just to like keep the whole building cool it was wild you know i sort of i followed that for a couple of years and then i sort of it, it became more mainstream and i right. stopped following it. but you know it was always the same idea of like what are these weird invisible layers of the city and how do they shape our experience of it, you know, and the idea that some of them were like coming out of Wall Street was like, what the fuck? Like, but there it was there, you know, so, yeah. And you didn't make money doing that, right? No, no, that was totally just like, Thinking uh, that I, I was, I was just interested. I was just fascinated just by it. Just interested in something and just figure things out. Yeah, I just chased it. And, yeah, Maybe yeah. you got some talks or something I got, off I got, it. I got, yeah. and, and sometimes people would say like, oh, I'm very interested in your research. And I was, I was like, what is research? And it's like, oh, oh, it's just when you're really interested in stuff and you, I know. And you, and you, and you chase it. It took me a while yeah. to realize yeah. that too. Yeah, right. like, it's I, like, you know, I got the whole PhD <laughs> in on the... And then it's like, oh, we want you to come and share your research. It's like, well, I haven't really researched anything. I thought research was like books and stuff, but... Well, it is. It, Although, I mean, how much did you read? But for me, it didn't come from yeah. it. It came mostly just from like finding the people who were working on stuff and just saying like, really, you do this? And like, can you right. show me this? And like, Well, you, I know. And that's yeah. the research that no one wants yeah. to do. They want yeah. to sit at home yeah. and just get it off the net. Yeah. And when you just sit at home and get it off the net, you're basically looking at other people's research. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So then you were at MIT for a while yeah, doing so what? Then, okay, so then basically the Media Lab at MIT, this is I guess 2012, they asked if I wanted to run a research lab there and I or if I wanted to apply to, to do that. And, I, and now I, that you I, knew what I, research was, said, you figured you could. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I would say that I didn't really understand what research was until a couple of years into okay. MIT. Right. <laughs> now, now I think I do. Right. I had absolutely no idea what I was signing on for. The Media Lab, you know, had this sort of legendary reputation. And, and I knew some people who were researchers there. And I really, I really admired them. Yeah. And I loved their work. And and I wasn't. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I and I, you know, I. I, I think I no was, one there still does. On a certain level, I don't. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't speak to it. But I. But I. You know, I asked. You know, I was recruited in a way by Nicholas Negroponte. Right. It was right before uh, Joe Ito came in to run it. And you know, I, I said, so what? What is it that I'm expected to do there? Like, let's say I said yes, and I started right. on Monday. What would I? And he just said, whatever you want. And I was like, but what does that actually mean, right? Because, because in fact, you know, I had never had that luxury before, right. right? Of just like, you know, everything had always, like I had to figure out like who might be interested in, I have like half of an idea, you know, who could be interested in, in helping nurse that forward. And just the idea of just doing whatever I wanted, was, it wasn't even something I was really dying to do because I felt like, but I'm in New York City and I can do whatever I want here too, right? Like, so what right. is that? Well, they give you a salary yeah, nominally, uh, <laughs> right? like not nominally, right? It was, it was, it was not, it was not a lot. It was right. Not I mean, that's side. supposed to be the yeah. deal for right. for college professors right. too. Right. The idea right. is the reason you get paid more than an adjunct is they're paying you a salary and maybe half your time you're teaching and the other half. I mean, that's why they like publish or perish. They want right. to make sure you're publishing or right. doing because they're paying you right. to do your research. Right. Yeah. You know, and exactly. they, yeah, saying yeah, you yeah. are you we think you're worth 40 grand right yeah, <laughs> so yeah spend yeah, yeah, that yeah, much of yeah, your time yeah i got there and i really had absolutely no idea how any of it worked in part because all i had was a bfa in sculpture <laughs> and even that it wasn't even really sculpture so i really i had no model for this type of right. education or research and so on and so forth. and i was quite lost actually for 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 quite a while I, I ended up spending four years there and 
It's also true that when I got there, the general vibe was, well, you'd done all this work in these location-based games and these games that took place in cities. Just just take that further. Just go further right. with it. But the thing that had happened in the meantime was that, like, you know, we started doing that in 2003, 2004. In the meantime, by then it was 2013, there was like a phone with a GPS chip and it was just, it was like, it was easy to do it. And I, I remember saying, the reason I'm not interested in this is because we're not more than one or two years away from just some big commercial thing that just steamrollers the whole thing, which was absolutely true, right? Pokemon, right. Pokemon Go was like 24 months later. It wasn't, not more than that. Well, it was like Pokemon 18. Go on the one mm-hmm. side and then like Google Streets or whatever they called it, absolutely. Sidewalk yeah. Yeah, it was like, on the it was other. Like, it was like, it wasn't really investigative anymore. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't difficult enough to be interesting. But it's not just that it wasn't right, but yeah. the fact is, so it feels though that something then was lost, that this... Yeah consciousness expanding series of interventions that help people go, oh, I am part of something bigger. My whole life's pursuit. Help people understand we are in team human and we can think both on the individual scale of ourselves and our families and our our love mates and this next level of that. And once you do that, there's all these levels. And then humanity's relationship to the 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 biome. And so so these entrances are there First, are you a little bit sad that we're or hopeful that we can somehow re retrieve this urban understanding of ourselves? And, and where did that take you next? Well, okay, so I think basically by the time I got there, it felt like just like the punk rock era of location based anything was over, mm. right? And I mean, I think it's there for anyone to revive. Now, but it's so also, is the net, but, so right, is the I mean, web, yeah, so right, is you know, crypto, but it's like, so is cypherpunk. But it, but, it, but it also just, it just, it felt smooth and flat. Right. And so I had to figure out what was, what was a better question. And I would say like my first year at MIT, I really just spent most, uh, I would say a considerable part of my time just trying to figure out like, what is a better question that I can spend yeah. my time trying to answer? And I guess through the work that we'd done, I had, you know, I'd, I'd met, a whole bunch of folks and been in a kind of milieu of a whole bunch of folks who were working in similar spaces. And two of them, Jack Schultz and Timo Arnall, had done really beautiful work, like maybe the year before I got to MIT, called Immaterials. It was it was such stunning work. And they basically it's a little bit hard to explain, but they used time delay photography and a sensor to show where the Wi-Fi fields were in cities like where they were dense and, you know, mm-hmm. but using light. So they would make these photographs and you would just see the waves of Wi-Fi moving through the city. And it was like, you know, or just like the waves of RFID radio signals mm-hmm. around stuff, but with light. And I remember seeing them, the the work that Jack and Tina did, it was so beautiful. And it was, it was like, it's this, this is what we're trying to say is, is that, that like this, in a way, this is like, this is material, right? Like the, right. the invisible transmissions here are, are, are a material that artists and designers can work with. And I was looking at that and I was thinking about the work that we've done. And then in the meantime, I'm there at MIT and I'm surrounded no longer by New York City, you know, no longer by basically artists and and designers and though and one flavor of weirdos. I was surrounded by a totally other flavor of weirdos, who many of whom were like really badass scientists, like huh. proper scientists. I'd only ever really hung out with engineers before, and that's really different than scientists. Right. And the, and a lot of the scientists who were there 
were really extraordinary biologists. And 2013, 2014 was also a very special time in biology because it wasn't wasn't the very beginning of synthetic biology, but it was early. It was a, it was a wilder West than we're in now. And there were all these things that were just sort of starting to boot up. And the idea that like DNA wasn't just something that we could understand. It was also a material that we could read and write right. was like, holy shit, like this is, I mean, and I sort of knew that abstractly I'd read about, but like meeting the people who were doing that at a very high level. Right. To learn the DNA right. is not a read only medium. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it's like, it, it, it really blows your mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, and, and also to just to like, to be with the people who are, they're not just talking about that. They're actually doing that. Right. It's like, that's also really different. And I know, you know, right, you know, you know like, I have a dinner and then realize I'm with a real scientist and I realize you are so powerful. Right. It's right. <laughs> right. And it was like, it was powerful, but it was also raw, you know, and also I'd been sensitized to it to some degree by, uh, before MIT, there was a day, there used to be this magical building. I don't know if you ever went there. You, I'm sure you spent time there. 33 Flatbush in, in Brooklyn. It was an incredible building. This is on Flatbush Avenue, downtown Brooklyn. And it was owned by this guy named Al, who'd owned it since like the 70s. And I don't think he was unaware of the financial value of it. He just wasn't interested in the financial right. value of it. And basically, it was like co-working space for like all Ugh. of like some of the most interesting people in New York City. So I used to spend time there. And I was going to visit the architect, uh, Mitch Joachim, who had his architecture practice there. And I had to walk through this little space and I was stopped in my tracks. This is maybe like 2010. And I remember being stopped in my tracks by like, what the fuck is this? And what it was, was a thing called GenSpace. And GenSpace was one of the very first hacker spaces for bio, right? And it was kind of like hacker spaces that have been in before, but it was like wet and it smelled funny. Right. And there were like people who had stained lab coats. And it reminded me vividly of that scene in the original Blade Runner where there's like the guy who's making the eyes and the vats. It looked right. like that. And the people who were there were like that. Yeah. You know, and I was I was I, and I I was stopped on my way to go do something else and it's to just say like what is what is yeah, this? And so it's closer there, to a naked lunch future than Space Odyssey. <laughs> it, it was wild. Yeah. Like it was and wild. it's great like, that, that, like, that and this becomes I mean to, yeah. to cut to it cut to a chase, it becomes your new field of inquiry. Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing is you found it yeah. by basically wandering the city. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was serendipity of urban connections. It was it was the serendipity of Gen Space in New York and then and then also a different type of serendipity. And you know, I have all I have a lot of problems with the kinds of like elite models of education and whatever. Right. But like the thing that MIT did do is it it does bring people who are really interesting in, you know, right on top of each other. And to some degree, that really does do something. Right. right? Like like it really did do something. And so, right. so then, sometimes like, at their like, peril, yeah. as, <laughs> like, as the case may be. <laughs> right. You know, but you so, don't want him on top of you. But <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but so but so but so yeah, so then I then I met I'm so then I'm at MIT and and I'm with all these biologists and I'm learning about what is really starting to become possible uh, right. in bio. And it led me to just on the backs of the work that Timo and Jack had done of visualizing the sort of invisible informatic fields of the city. I was like, okay, that's super interesting. But wouldn't it be more interesting if you could apply the same ethos, but not to the information layers of the city, but to like the biological layers of the city? And I have no idea 
what I mean when I say this when I at the time, right. you know, I was, I was like, I don't know what that means. But wouldn't that be a good thing to chase? Yeah. Right. And so and so that's that was the question that I, I started with. It was just to say, like, is there a unique biological signature for places on earth, right? Like in the same ways that like, you know, we had been at the very front of figuring out the technological signatures for places on earth, what are now four square venues or Pokemon gyms or whatever that, you know, there's a, at least five different ways using a phone where in any place on earth, you can get the technological signature of a place, right? It has a latitude and a longitude and it has, right. you know, has the Wi-Fi signals and it has cell signals and it has GPS signals and so on. But I was like, but does it also have a unique biological fingerprint? Like, is this place on Earth biologically distinct from Lagos and Tokyo and right. and, and So if Berlin? I took a Wilson baseball out of the package yeah. in Madagascar yeah. and rolled it around right. on some shit right. or whatever's around there, right. stuck it back in the box and shipped yeah. it to a lab, yeah. could they figure out? Yeah, where we played with right, it. and that's and and I was like, is that possible? Is like, it? like, is that well, possible? Th- is it? And and at at, <laughs> at the at the time, the at the, at the time, the general answer was no, right? Huh. Like, there were like to be clear, there were like maybe four or five people in at least in the United States yeah. who who would have said yes, but not more than well, that. I mean, if you right. find a mosquito yeah. mosquito that's got Zika virus in it, you yeah. could say, well, that's probably from Brazil, right? right? Yeah. So yeah, so this was part of what led to figuring out how to approach this was I had learned about, I'm going to botch this, right? Like, like So, 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 uh, so, so yeah, so there's going to be like a little bit of imagination <laughs> in botch, addition, in addition botch, to memory. Botching space. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so I think it was a type of rabbit in the jungle like I don't even know if there are rabbits in the jungle. This is how let's just this say, is terrible. A rabbit-like let's, creature let's in say, a jungle-like place. Yeah, right. Like like some kind. I think it was a rabbit, and they weren't sure whether it was extinct or not. And and so researchers were trying to figure out whether this rabbit had gone extinct. And so they went and they like gridded out the area, and they had probably grad students just like you know in each sector and they're like you'd see any rabbits there no nope. how about here no nope. no nope. and it's just like this is a terrible this is obviously a terrible way it's and, a bad, and, bad and, experimental and, design right and it, but but a common one right. right but a common one but then in the meantime as they were doing that they were also all getting beset upon by leeches and so one of the researchers who was working on that was like wait a minute Duh. yeah wait bing, bing, bing. right like oh this leech is filled with my blood and if there are rabbits here they would be filled with rabble and so they started to take the leeches and sequence the dna of the blood that the leeches had inside right. them. and sure enough they found out that the that the rabbits wow. were there and, they, and then they could figure out like where they were using the leeches and i was like i was like okay so so it is possible to determine where life is not using an optical paradigm by looking for it, you know, and also, you know, keep in mind, like all of biology for, you know, 99.9% of the history of the idea of biology was a fundamentally optical phenomenon, yeah. right? It was like, it was like anything you could observe. And then we will invent machines that will ob- allow you to observe things that are too small right. for your eye, right? Like right. using but lenses. But even from the beginning, right. science yeah. was those, those Audubon books of birds right. and right. trees. Yeah. 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 But, it was like, but it was like, yeah. it, was, it was about looking, looking. right? It was right. like, like, like one way or another, it was about, it was about looking. And this thing happened, at least to my mind, quietly, which was that there was this, this transformation 
of biology into what is essentially this a data science, right? Like right. biology has been transformed into data, right? Like and and you know biology has been digitized essentially through the modern methods. Right. Of and just to be clear, that doesn't mean life has been digitized. We're saying right. biology, right. Right. That's right. Right. the yeah. science yeah. of life yeah. has yeah. been digitized. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, life within right. one framework of understanding. I wouldn't life. want people to say, "Oh, they're saying that people are no different than computers." And no, 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 no. no. no, no, no. no, no, no. no. There is no. DNA right. in people. Right. It's right. part of what we That's are. Right. And That's right. Yeah. 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 Yes. Thank you. Yes. Speaking of botches. So yeah. So I got. So I realized, like, okay. So the way the way to determine this of like what the unique biological signature is, is by somehow collecting the DNA or the RNA of whatever is around us. And then we can, we can sequence that. And, the, and also there was a, a novel at the time. It was really novel advanced in science of something called metagenomics and metagenomics is wild, right? So meta, so genomics is where, uh, I ask you to spit in a jar and then I look that up against the human genome. I know that you're human and I and we've characterized the human genome, so I look up what's going on with you relative to everything we know about the human genome. But if I give you like a bowl of soup and I say what's in here, you know, you don't know. Am I supposed to look up? Am I, do I look it up against the tomato genome? Do I look it up against the cow genome? Like I don't know. And so instead, you extract all the DNA of everything that's in there, and then you look it up against the entire tree of life, which mm. is wild right if you think about from a data perspective you know just from a computational perspective what's involved there it's bananas right and it makes it's made even more complex because most of the methods by which you do that you're actually busting up the dna into fragments and some of the fragments get lost so you're basically getting like a couple million puzzle pieces that belong to like ten thousand puzzle boxes but you don't know which puzzle boxes they are and also 20 percent of them are missing right. you know and but like you know computers are really good at this yeah you know and so and so you could do that and it was like it's like okay so if we could just collect a specimen from a place we could sequence it and we could find out everything that's there but how do you collect that specimen right and well, so it sounds so, almost like the way a dog moves through the neighborhood just like sniffing yes well that's what they're the, doing right i mean thing yeah like, yeah no joe was here yes. i think mary oh somebody knew yeah one, yeah, one of our <laughs> one of our like like most animals like their primary interface to to the things that are that are invisible is is our nose right yeah. like because because what's happening is that the things that are invisible or trigger anyway that, that's, yeah. that's its own tangent but i had to figure out like what am i gonna collect how am i gonna collect it yeah. and it was right around that time when the Red Honey of Brooklyn happened. And the Red Honey of Brooklyn was its own crazy story. It was uh, it was a beekeeper in Williamsburg. And it was in that period, it was just like a brief period in the history of New York where if you had a beard and tattoos, they gave you like a beehive. Like there was like some, <laughs> there was like some kind of federal program. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but like if you met somebody who had a beard and tattoos, they were a beekeeper, you know, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what it was. It was very brief. And, uh, but this guy had one and he went to, to get the honey from his hive in Williamsburg and it was bright red. And to his credit, basically, he ended up having to kind of like follow the bees to see what they had gotten into. Because like, was it poison? Right. Maybe it was really good. Maybe this was like some new thing. And what was the red coming from? It's exactly what you're thinking right now. It was the maraschino cherry factory in Red Hook. <laughs> right. And so the bees were getting into the maraschino cherry factory that was about a mile away. And maraschino Hook. cherries are dyed that color. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, not something natural. called simple syrup. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and there was like a little article in the New Yorker about that, about like the red honey in Brooklyn. And I was, I was like, I was like, wow, that's, 
That's really interesting, and and uh, and, I'll, and 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 that was that was like that was that was like Black that was, Mirror. That was, well, that yeah. was like the aha moment. I should say also that <laughs> it's a it's a tangent. You can't miss this part of the story, which is that I read that story and it led me off into the research that that has continued for the last ten years. But it also led somebody from the from the EPA and the FDA to be like, oh, so. I read in the New Yorker that there's a factory that produces food that has bees in the food, which is obviously not okay, right? right? Because it means that other insects could be in there. And then, you know, and so they sent an inspector and the inspector checked out the maraschino cherry factory. And when the, I guess it was an FDA inspector checked out the factory, he found something really anomalous. And so he contacted a different agency and then there's like an ellipsis here. And then basically the FBI show up and they move the bookcase over on the rails and there's the stairs down uh, leading to the largest illegal marijuana farm uh, <gasps> in New York City's history. And uh, they discovered that and then came back upstairs and the owner of the factory shot himself. Like It was like this wow. crazy, he'd been running that for like 20 years and the, the Maraschino Cherry Factory was like a front you know, it's like to disguise the electrical signatures of the lamps and everything like and that. The for, and, and, and the bees did him in. The bees did. They they could have. They he was he could he would have gotten away with it, except for those damn bees, right? Yeah, damn yeah, bees. right. Those wow. damn bees. And I was like, I was like, wow. So that's really interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so bees are picking up parts of the environment and bringing them back to their hive. Yeah. And I, I was, I was, and so, so and honey so, is a great place to look for so things. That, so not, not honey. I learned I yeah. didn't, I, that was, that was, that's, that was where I started. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out honey is essentially antimicrobial, right? There's yeah. a, like, there's a, yeah, there's yeah. a whole product, but there's something called bee debris, which is basically bee poop. Okay. Right? It's, it's basically the bees go out <laughs> They're they're optimized by nature to be like swabs, right? Like that's that, yeah. that like they are designed to to capture right. as they're much like of the Q-tip. environment as possible. Yeah. It's a little floating Q-tip, and um, and then they come home and they just kind of like wipe their feet, you know, right? right. Like they kind of like shake it off yeah. in a way. And so uh, by then I had a couple of uh, really good students in my lab. And so one of them designed uh, what we called a metagenomic beehive. And so it was a beehive that was designed. Doormat. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was like a doormat. It was like, it was, the, it was, it was like a beehive, a, a conventional Langstrip beehive in all respects, except that the base of it was like an old four by five camera or eight by 10 camera where it was like, it was like a sliding plate. Yeah. Right. And so the bees would come in, they would wipe their feet on the mat. And then once a week, sometimes twice yeah. a week, we would pull the mat and it would seal Right. And then so all the genetic material that the bees yeah. had accumulated and brought back would be sealed within this thing. And then we would ship that to the Weill Cornell Center for Computational Genomics. And we would say with a check, I guess. And, well, it's it academia. <laughs> it's, right. There's like there's either no money or it's all, all money. Right. I, I never quite figure out which. And so, God damn it, it worked. Right. We could really see what was happening within a mile to about a mile and a half of a hive because bees won't go more than that in a city. They won't go more than a mile or a mile and a half away from their hive. And so we could see, you know, uh, the first ones we did were in Brooklyn and we could see like, Oh, why? Like it's weird. It shows they're showing like certain like 
plants and whatever. And it's like, oh, that's because people are doing drugs. Like is right. why, you know, like yeah. they're, oh, that, you know, like, and it's, you know, it's just somewhere within a mile around that hive. Like somebody is doing this or that. And then all kinds of other things. And, you know, part of what's curious is like half the things that we found don't even have names because the, the vast microbial world is so poorly characterized, right. you know. And, well, it's and, early. And, but yeah. And, yeah. And also we generally have only ever given na- names to things where we know what they do. Right. Well, like, we could eat them. Or we could we could eat them, something. or they kill yeah. us, or right. whatever it is. Right. Fair like, then then they get a name. Everything else is is essentially junk DNA. Yeah, yeah we call yeah. we call it junk DNA. Yeah. Or like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like okay, I'm but keeping that's all not, my junk that's, DNA. That's Thank not, you very much. That's not really how it works. Yeah. But, uh, but okay, I wanted so, for an emergency for a unique <laughs> circumstance that might come up. So but, so so that's what we started doing, and it was like, I was like, okay, this is exactly what I dreamed right. of. Right. It was like that there was like a way to gather the biological fingerprint of whatever place we're in. And I worked on that for a couple of years and I found through that, through that work, I found like a couple of actual scientists, right? You know, here's me like asking basically the dumbest questions, but there were like actual scientists who were sort of at the beginning of their own work in, in this area. And so one of them who I started working with and became very close with is a guy named Chris Mason, Dr. Chris Mason at Weill Cornell Center for Computational Genomics. And he, he right around that time, he had done the subway studies where he physically swabbed every single subway station in New York City. Like we used yeah. bees and he used grad students, right? right? He had like, I guess, millions of yeah. dollars and hundreds of grad students and years. And they physically swabbed the same swabs that everyone's had go up their nose in COVID. Like they were using those swabs and they would do like the turnstiles and the, and like the places where you sit. And they were able to characterize the subway stations of New York city. And, and their results were wild. I mean, our results were super interesting. His results were wild. It's like there were two stations in New York city where there was like one specific microbe that was like completely off the charts from all the others. And it turns out that it's produced in fermentation. And so you might think, oh, those are places where people are getting drunk and maybe they're yeah. throwing up, whatever. But it wasn't. It's produced in the fermentation of cabbage. Yeah. And it's those it's are the places. The factory. Yeah. Uh, uh, the kimchi factory. It's, uh, it, the, the, they were the two stops where the most Korean Americans live and work. That's um, great. But yeah. then, because. Then, uh, uh, Oh, uh, yeah, we're right running. Yeah, running. It scares okay. me. Yeah. So eventually then you so, got to, so, yeah. to COVID. Yeah, so to run through it like really quickly. But like I worked on this and a, a bunch of super interesting scientists worked on this for a couple years. And you know who was interested in this was basically – fucking no one like nobody cared about this and we would do like you know i would put together like symposia in new york or in tokyo or whatever you know to say like this is incredible like we can we can detect the microbial ecosystem around us that is magical like that is like for me i was, I was like this is this is far more interesting than mars right, right. like is like is like our own planet is teeming with life that we cannot see and will never be able to see but we can detect it now and it's wild right and nobody cared because you're connecting to two systems the system yeah. lower than us and the system higher yeah. than us yeah. Yeah. yeah and and basically nobody cared because everybody was like but so what and it was like that until 2020 and then it was like, oh, sorry, you can do what? <laughs> so, so you can detect microbes in the environment. And I was, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is our time. And I reached out to some of the scientists that I worked with. And I was, I was like, this is our time. Because at the time, you know, this was like March 2020, you couldn't even get tests, right? You couldn't get tests to determine if people had it. But I was like, but we could tell if it's in the room. We could see if it's in the hospital, I know how to do that. You know how to yeah. do that. Like, let's fucking do that. 
And so starting in March 2020, I started working with with some folks on that. And it it works. It 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 worked and it works. It was those were the earliest days of not just COVID, but also just this approach. And so the folks I was working with made the decision to go with what's called surface testing, which is basically it was basically like what Chris Mason was doing on the subway, like taking a swab and swabbing your computer keyboard, right. your your coffee cup, your whatever. And then sequencing that and seeing is SARS-CoV-2 present. Right. Now, that in the early pandemic was useful because if it was present, you would close down that clinic for yeah. a while, whatever. But it's also complicated. It's complicated because, well, it's your coffee cup. Yeah. And you may not know that you're infectious. And we're not allowed to tell you that. And who's who do we tell that right. to? And it's all kinds of complicated. And also it's complicated because... You're picking up the RNA, but you don't know whether you're picking up a live RNA of the virus or the fossil of it that's been right. there for a month because nobody really cleaned their keyboard, right? So you don't know. So that so we worked on that and we deployed that at some considerable scale, but it was problematic. It was like the signals are problematic for a bunch of reasons that I that I mentioned and a bunch of other reasons as well. And then I started working with some folks who figured out how to do the same thing, but using the air. And that was that was like, okay, so if you're detecting it in the air, you know that it's live virus. And that's that's a much bigger yeah. deal. And it you can't assign that to anybody in particular. Right. So you just you, you know that like, you know that like, yeah. like like somebody in this office is infectious, right. everybody should go home and and it was a very clever system using electrostatics that I, I had never thought of that uh, back when I was trying yeah. to figure out how to do it. It was clever. But it was like a real – we rolled it out. It was like kind of like – it was like post-vaccine. And so the numbers were kind of squished and everybody was back. And then if there was a signal, it was significant. But then like Omicron happened and it turned into like the best way I can say it is it's like it was like trying to sell smoke detectors outside of a forest fire. You know, right. it's like it's like, yeah, yeah. How about over here? Is it in yeah. the Starbucks? Yes. yes. What about on this bus? <laughs> yes. You know, like in the school. Yeah. Also there, too. Right. And so so there wasn't really a market right. for a smoke detector because everything was on fire. And there's a whole long, interesting story about how we pivoted that around some other things. But. Ultimately, that was not a successful venture, yeah. uh, broadly speaking. But I wasn't ready to give up on any of this. And at the same time, this super, super interesting company uh, out of Boston called Ginkgo Bioworks had started up a division in the pandemic called Concentric, which is their biosecurity division. And they were focused on exactly this problem. Can we detect the like biological threats before they become something concrete that affects us. And I knew some folks there and I basically reached out and, and eventually uh, that led to consulting with, uh, with Concentric, which is what I'm doing now, which is the, the biosecurity division of, of Ginkgo. And I've been consulting with Concentric for about, for about three months. And I just, I should state like super, super clearly that like everything I'm going to say here and everything I have said has like it's not I'm not speaking for ginkgo yeah. or concentric. I really need to emphasize that. But the work is fascinating because it is doing at scale exactly what I dreamed of doing, you know, eight years ago, which is like, can we get the biological fingerprints of the planet? So we're basically coming now to the the story of poop. <laughs> well, so, okay, so the folks at Concentric are building this, what they, we are calling planetary bioradar, right? Like the idea that you can detect what is happening at a microbial level anywhere on the planet. 
And then the, you know, are you going to use bees? Are you going to send grad students out to swab the subways, whatever? And, and so one of the techniques that was developed back 10 years ago when all this was first starting, and again, this was a thing that nobody paid attention to at that time, was, uh, was wastewater, which I think by now, a lot of people are kind of like they're familiar that it is somehow used in COVID measurements and somehow, but it, it, it predates COVID. And it's the idea of using basically human waste uh, to detect what is traveling through our bodies. What are we carrying with us on our journeys? And the in Concentric's case involves using, among other things, the wastewater from specific flights that are international. Because if you think about it, what the wastewater from a flight that has traveled internationally really represents is what everybody who stepped into a tube at point A brought with them, left on the plane as they arrive in point B. And uh, if they left it on the plane, uh, they're also still carrying it with them. Right. right. And so if you can take the wastewater that was on the flight and instead of putting it in a landfill or et cetera, if instead you bring it to our labs, uh, we can analyze and sequence what uh, is going on in there and, and really find out what else arrived in addition to the humans on any given flight. And that is the first step of a much broader grid of uh, sensing capabilities. But to your point, it is, it starts in the, in the humble domain of poop and I think, you know, it's part of what led me to this inquiry in the first place was just learning back when I was first talking to all these like real biologists, this thing that like, okay, my DNA and your DNA are, are, are basically exactly the same. Like they're like they 99.9% yeah. the same. They're, they're, uh, they're almost identical, but my gut biome is totally unique from your gut bio. Yeah, and has way more data in it. it has There's way, way that, more right. of them. Is, I mean, right? yeah. once you know how much data there is in your gut biome, right. you start to think, well, I'm just the parchment. Exactly. The, exactly. The gut biome's the story exactly. here. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's actually that that was sort of like my initial interest was like, well, well, so what, you know, what is what is that kingdom actually, right? Because because the gut biome is really just a reflection of the environmental microbiome, you know. Yeah, but right? it's a thing. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. talk to people who've gotten uh, like fecal microbiota transplants, yeah, right? Which yeah, they do for various yeah. problems. Their appetite changes. Their appetite right? changes, sure. So they yeah. want different food. Sure. So they yeah. think they want different food, but it's the back gut biome in there that's like, oh no, we're used to coleslaw. Right. Yeah. You know, give sure. us some of that, dude. There's also there's a lot of things that we really don't understand. There's uh, you know there they I remember back when we were first working on this stuff. So fecal matter transplants, which is which is basically replacing your poop with somebody else's poop. It was most commonly done 10 years ago when I was like first looking at this for, uh, for something called C. diff, which is C. Right. difficile, which is a hospital-acquired infection typically. And uh, it's especially tenacious because it looks like other things, and so they start treating it with antibiotics, and so what they're doing is they're really nuking yeah. right, the entire microbiome inside somebody, and then C. diff can really go to town. And really the only thing that you can do is, is a fecal matter transplant. And the first folks I know that were working on it, and it was a very small number of subjects that they were working with, now it's more, much more common. But, it, but even in the very first runs, they had somebody who had C. diff, and they also had alopecia, I think it's called, where yeah. you lose all your hair, right? Which is a very poorly understood disease. like Autoimmune, whatever, something. they don't know, yeah. And this person also had C. diff that they picked up in the hospital, and so they got a fecal matter transplant, and it helped the C. diff, and then also all their hair grew back. Right. And it's like, 
uh, oh, oh, it, oh, it turns out that this thing that we couldn't explain is explicable. It's just not explicable by the conventional means of medicine as a single human with our DNA. And then there are just these viruses that attack. That's not really how it works, right? right? In fact, we are ourselves these complex ecosystems and there's all kinds of interplay. And that was actually, you know, the initial point of inquiry. And so it turns out that like, well, poop is a really good way to find out what's happening inside someone. Right. And so, and there's like, there's some fascinating examples really specifically around poop. Like there's a guy, I think he's a, he's a scientist. I forget of what type, I think maybe a virologist and he's in Ohio and he is working with wastewater data in Ohio. And he was looking at uh, fully sequenced data from uh, municipal wastewater. So in other words, they're looking at the wastewater from a small town, right. let's say, or a zip code. And he saw that COVID was there, which you will find in any zip code. But when they did a full sequence on it, they found that it was like a really, um, what they call a cryptic lineage. It's it's like, it was basically a variant that doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong in our in our point in the timeline. It's like, I think it was, it predates us by a long, it's like two Some years old. Delta and, yeah, virus right, or something, you know? yeah. And uh, what is it doing in the poop? And then it was sort of persistent. And so the thing where the story gets especially weird is, is that this guy then gained access to wastewater data from another area of Ohio and the very same one was appearing. The very same cryptic lineage yeah. of, of COVID was appearing. And it seems clear you can infer from the data that it's where a person lives and works. You can't right. tell it, right? So it's like, it's like they're, they're pooping pooping it. Yeah. And like and like and, and they're basically leaving this like very specific variant of covid wherever he or she is going eventually you find and it on the arby's at the interstate you know who it, went on vacation it, it could, yeah it could it could that could, that would that could explain it it's, it could it could all be explained with arby's uh, the way that most things can be explained with arby's but um but like the interesting thing is is like it's like with that data it's like it's it's insanely specific but on the other hand you have no idea what to do with that particular right. one it's like you know because also whoever is shedding that it means it's deep in their gut and they haven't been able to, to metabolize the disease. I mean, right. like it's like, it's, it's definitely problematic for that person and they don't know it. And you'd like to be able to get in touch with them, but you can't cause you don't know who it I is. And it's right, but it's know. interesting. Cause I mean, I know Josh, our, our producer, he would sometimes text me and go, Oh, they found uh there's, you know, COVID in the wastewater. You yeah. start wearing your mask again. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming yeah. back. Yeah. I mean, and that's yeah. real, right? It's, it's absolutely real. The, the correlations between wastewater findings and hospitalizations and excess death, there's now like more than sufficient data to like really, it's strongly, strongly correlated. So it's like a COVID yeah. weather report it kind is, of. Yeah. And a predictor, yeah. almost yeah. a barometric pressure. Uh oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's back. right. That's right. right. But it's, but more than that, it's not just that it is present. It's being able to do what's called bioinformatics and really go deep into it and say, like, it's this specific strain. It's this right. new strain and it has these qualities and so on. And I think, you know, for, for concentric, you know, the idea is just, it's not, uh, it's obviously not just COVID. It's, it's any pathogen of interest will show up at some point in the environment. Right. And if we can find it in the environment quickly enough, and if we can, if we can detect it and sequence it quickly enough, it allows us 
the the time and the infrastructure to prevent it and respond. Right, but right. the idea yeah. itself, yeah. which yeah. is kind of what I want to yeah. get into yeah. at the end here, the idea itself is both is fascinating, frightening, and fantasy creating for people. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, the way we're talking about it, this is cool. We're all connected by our poop, and mushrooms eat our poop, and poop is information. And I've always been upset that we poop in toilets rather than giving it back totally. to the earth. Absolutely. Because I this want the shameful. mushrooms yeah. to yeah. see. Yeah. Especially if you take mushrooms, I want them to see what you've done with yeah, them yeah, and yeah, how they yeah, come yeah, out. They yeah, want the information yeah, so they know, oh, yeah. Rushkoff has to learn this next time. Let's make some of these spores for him, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. You yeah, know, and we're yeah, just hiding it from yeah, them. We're taking yeah, and not giving. Yeah. So there's there's that cool stuff. But then it's like and I know people like see certain news stories out of the corner of their eye. And there are people, we don't even have to name them, some famous people or friends of mine who will see poop covid detection thing and then somehow translate that into uh-oh if people who got the covid virus are going to contaminate uh, remember that one there was a rumor that if you got the covid vaccine yeah. then your poop will have to be separated from regular people's poop or it will contaminate them yeah. somehow and it's like that comes out of this and yeah. i think it's partly because what the poop tells us is we're all connected, that we're all part of this thing. Yeah, I mean, yes, the poop tells us. I mean, but also viruses tell us. That. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, like, like that's what's perverse about it. It's like, it's like, it's like everything is right about what they think, except it's not the vaccine; it's the virus, right? Like, but, but it's true. But whether it's it's poop on the way out or viruses on the way in, I think the minute you start looking at the world on a microbial level you realize that what it really threatens in a, for me, always a positive way is the notion of an individual organism, right? Because in the same way that like, there was like a whole revolution about like, well, you know, like that the sun, that the earth is not the center, the sun goes around it and that, and that, that humans are not the center. In fact, there's this thing called evolution. It's like, well, maybe actually there is no individual, right? Because if the individual is actually totally made up of 10,000 or 100,000 distinct microbes, you know, that that number in the in the millions or or billions or trillions, and if you were to remove that microbe, the human is nothing, right? You would last right. hours, right? You know, at at the most, right? Right. You know, so and so, if you remove the human from the other you, humans, right, so which yeah, goes right, back yeah, to the city. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah, why I yeah. think certain forces hate the city and city people. Yeah. It's why the nation state yeah. came to destroy the city state yeah. because the city state told us we're not individuals. You are part, when people would say, what's your home in the old days, you would say the city that you live in. You right. wouldn't say that right. house over there. Right. 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 And right. when you get the nation state and the suburbs yeah. and individualism and yeah. the strident freedom of the individuals or, yeah. you know, MAGA yeah. freedom of the yeah. individual, it's a fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a fiction. Right. That's right. why they right. hate us. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when they say, you know, it's like the don't tread on me it's like what's the, what the what's the me you know right, right. Like, like like how big is that me you know right like, like it's not what, don't tread on us yeah right right they nobody don't ever tread says on that. we yeah right nobody <laughs> says that that's not what they say and it, and i think that part of what we what you learn in epidemiology and part of what you learn in any kind of microbial studies the minute you start to actually look at the science of of any of the things that actually make us human outside of our own dna which is really just a fragment of what makes us who we are like you just realize like it is everything that that is shaped like a person 
is already an ecosystem that's in free play with everything else in the ecosystem and not in like a not in like a hand wavy right woo woo way but like in a very real way even if you're gonna play the data game with the data dudes you can go okay your human dna data is this teeny little fraction right yeah right what is actually going on here and what's actually going on here is actually interrelated with all these other organisms that are spreading and sharing you think your spacesuit's gonna protect you dude you know so ain't ain't gonna work you're on a fucking team buddy yep yep yeah team (laughs) microbe right is that the name of the show yeah team microbe right i'm now i'm thinking team earthling team earthling yeah okay earthlings yeah Yeah. Yeah. earthlings because at least it's here you know it's 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 our home team earthlings we're all earthlings the microbes are are earthlings yes they are yes yeah 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 they could be on team human well, they, they're yeah, friends of Team Human. Yeah, yeah they're friends. Right. Yeah, yeah, most most of them are friends. Not all of them. Not every single one of them I know. is Ebola, our friend. Ebola, for That's example. I mean, it was in 2019. I was still making propaganda about like we just need we need to embrace the microbial ecosystem and like we need to like stop being yeah. afraid. Like you know, all of the paint in this room is antimicrobial yeah. paint, right? That was like you know, like and in 2019, I was I was like, all of that is just some bullshit held over from a pandemic a century ago, and it's like. Oh, no, actually, no, 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 actually, no, some of the microbes are, in fact, kind of bad, yeah, right? But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the same with people, the more microbes you let in, the more allies you have That's right. in, in corralling those bad ones. Absolutely. You know, the more right. isolated right. you are, right. you That's are vulnerable. It. That's right. Yeah. In biology, the, the premise that diversity is the only way to win is, is self-evident. Right. right, and like, like, too like, bad like, in civilization, right, yeah, yeah, we right, haven't like, quite yeah, caught up with that. Yeah, but, yeah, but hopefully, yeah. hopefully, well, here we are on uh, on Team Human. Hopefully, if we get any lesson from that, <laughs> it's it's that find the others, meaning the others, not the ones you like, the others, <laughs> yeah. and bring them in, and it will only uh, it will only make things better, more resilient, and more fun. Well, thank you, Kevin, for, thank you, for playing the game. It's good. Yeah. That's good. I'm in. I'm all in. All right. It's me good. too. Thank you. Okay. Love you. All right. You too. And thank you for being on Team Human. You can become a member of the team and miss all the ads, but get access to our Discord channel, live events, and all sorts of good stuff by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaptelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Peace.